Good morning to you. How many of you have ever heard of Jews for Jesus? Okay. In 1970, Moishe Rosen founded a group who shared the gospel primarily to Jews. How many of you ever heard of Youth for Christ? Okay. In, uh, inspired by the work of Jack Wurtson in New York in 1946, Youth for Christ seeks to reach young people for Jesus. How many of you ever heard of Campus Crusade for Christ, or as it's now called, Crew? Okay. And so Campus Crusade for Christ was started in 1951 by Bill Bright, and it seeks to reach university students for Jesus. Here's one you probably don't know. How many of you have ever heard of Builders for Christ? Ah, very few. Uh, Builders for Christ is a group of volunteer laborers who get together to help churches build their churches uh, at minimal expense. They construct church buildings, uh, usually for church plants. All right, so keeping that in mind, Youth for Christ, Jews for Jesus, Builders for Christ, all of these different groups, I'm going to shift gears for just a moment. And uh, for several years, our family lived in Zimbabwe, and Zimbabwe is a land that is rich with wildlife. From the majestic elephants of Bumi Hills, uh, to the lions of Manipools, uh, to their pods of hippo in the rivers, to the lakes that lurk with crocodiles. By your feet, if you look down on the ground, you are going to see industrious dung beetles making your workday seem really glamorous by comparison. Here is a bush baby in Kadoma attempting to steer me the right way. Now, of all those animals, one in particular in Zimbabwe always fascinated me, and it is this guy, the chameleon. The chameleons, if you've ever seen them in real life, they rock back and forth. Uh, they mimic a branch swaying in the, leave, or in the wind to blow off predators. Their body sort of looks like a giant leaf. Their eyes go in all directions at different times. So instead of our, lives, our eyes track like this, their eyes go like this, and some people find that very freaky. Uh, but the thing that chameleons are most famous for is what? They change colors. They blend in their surroundings. And for those of you that want to know, you've ever watched a cartoon and the a chameleon gets electrocuted and he turns purple and fuchsia, and that's not what happens. We had an electrified fence, they turn black, and they trip out your security fence at about 3 in the morning is when they like to do that. Um, it's the fact that chameleons change colors... That is the facet that I want to hone in on this morning. Today I want to talk to you about becoming, our becoming, chameleons for Christ. Chameleons for Christ. God's Word encourages us to become all things to all people that we might win some. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to be starting at verse 19 today. And 1 Corinthians 9, 19, if you don't have a Bible with you, use our Blue Pew Bible in front of you, and on page 1216, you'll find 1 Corinthians 9, page 1216. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of this church to speak to us through your holy word, by your Holy Spirit, to make us a holy people. We pray that you would help us today to be on mission Christians, that we would be on task at the target you have given us. You have brought us here to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. You've called us to make disciples of all peoples, and that is going to require that we do what you did. Uh, 
Uh, you incarnated and you were flexible and you shared in ways that were suitable to the people that were in front of you. There wasn't a one-size-fits-all kind of approach, but you took the unchanging gospel and you brought it in packaging that people could understand in their point of need. Lord, help us to die to self through this message that we would uh, take up our cross and die to self that others might see Christ on the cross and that you might draw them unto yourself. Help us to have less deference to our preference and more completion of our mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says, I'm going to start at verse 18. The whole chapter is a unit, but I'm going to start in verse 18. We're going to focus from 19 to 23. Verse 18, Paul has been explaining that he has all these rights uh, and, and yet he's waived all these rights. He has all this right to remuneration, and yet he didn't take that right up because he was a foundational church planter to the church in Corinth. He didn't want people to think he was there to baptize their wallets. He was there to get their souls. And so he says in verse 18, What then is my reward, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Now here's our text, verse 19. For though I am free from all... You know, earlier you have the people that have all these different preferences of meat sacrifice to idols. He says, though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. And to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That is, as a Christian, I had freedoms, but when I was around people who didn't have those freedoms, I subordinated those freedoms to try to win them to Christ. Listen to that verse again. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win those under the law. Not impress them, not, not, but, but to win them. Now listen to this, verse 21. To those outside of the law, to the Gentiles who don't know the law of the Old Testament, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. That is, he didn't keep all of the kosher requirements of the law. Now he's careful to say, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he worked with the Gentile world in ways the Gentile world would understand without ever violating the moral law of God, but certainly flexing on the laws of his people, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, we have an outline in our bulletins today. If you flip open your bulletin, you'll see a, a lovely lengthy outline. It has some of the scriptures that we'll be looking at that aren't just in our text, so I'd encourage you to follow along there. Our first two points today are atypical because they're not found in the passage explicitly, but they are implicit. They're important background understanding that Paul's assuming you know, so then he can do some things that maybe you have forgotten. Okay? So the first point regarding our being chameleons for Christ is this. Each of us has a context in which we are most and least comfortable. This is just a reality. Each of us has a context in which we are most and indeed least comfortable. This is true for you. This is true for me. This is true for everybody. Uh, for some of us, our context that we're most comfortable is at the gym. 
For others of us, it's at the library. For some of us, it's with Norwegians or Italians or Africans or Irish or whoever your group is that you feel, well, that's really comfortable for me. Uh, For some of us, uh, we feel most comfortable at parties and large gatherings. For others of us, we would like to avoid parties and large gatherings. We're much more comfortable one-on-one or perhaps with a book. Um, Some of us prefer the company of artists. Others are more comfortable with the common laborer. Sports fans have their own sub-contexts. Avid cricketers are not usually so keen on American football. It's just true. Even within the same sport, even within the same league, folks have their preferred context. For instance, Yankees fans don't mix so readily with Red Sox fans. Same sport, same league, different comfortable levels. The point is, we all have a context in which we are most and least comfortable. What's true for us is true for the Apostle Paul as well. The Apostle Paul had an upbringing. He had a certain setting for which he did not have to strain and strive. It just came to him naturally. It was his natural cultural milieu. He was at home in that setting. And this is what we see in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he starts listing his credentials. But you're seeing also his cultural milieu that he grew up in. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, well, blameless. You see, the fact is that Paul's most comfortable personal context appears to be among the Jews. And that might seem a little surprising considering that Paul is the great apostle to the... Uh Uh-huh. Remember that. Where is Paul seemingly most comfortable? To the Jews. Where is Paul seemingly most effective? Where he's not comfortable. Yeah, it's one of those sermons. God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be faithful. And he wants you to be fruitful and effective. Paul spent the bulk of his time establishing churches in Gentile regions. And and he traveled extensively, usually where Jews were in the minority. That brings us to point two today. Each of us has passions and preferences, but that should not thwart us from reaching people for Christ who don't fit those categories. Say that again. Each of us has passions and preferences, but that should not thwart us from reaching people for Christ who don't fit in our categories. I want you to turn for a second to Romans 9. Romans 9 is on page 1202 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, page 1202. In Romans 9, it is abundantly clear That Paul has a passion, indeed a preference, in regards to those who are most on his heart every moment. Romans 9, page 1202. Romans 9.1 says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed. That is, I wish I would go to hell and be cut off from Christ. Why? For the sake of my brothers, he's speaking of the Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh. The, the, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. Paul was writing, and the Holy Spirit says this is exactly true. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't, this isn't overstatement. This is the sentiment of his heart's cry, his passion, and his preference. Paul was willing to go to hell if it meant his people would be saved. He had a burning passion to share Christ with his countrymen. Now, since he knew the gospel was to the Jew first, he knew this, he wrote this, in every city it was always Paul's practice to take the gospel first to the local synagogue. And only after their rejection would he then go to the Gentiles. Until persecution drove him out or the Holy Spirit led him out or there were other places who had not yet heard the gospel. And that was Paul's life, wasn't it? He always took it to the synagogue, and the synagogue always threw him out, and a few got saved, but many rejected. And then he would share until persecution drove him out, or the Holy Spirit led him out, because there are other towns that have not heard the gospel. So I want you to leave Romans 9, and I want you to go left, not theologically, but canonologically, go left to Acts 9. Acts 9, it's on page 1167. From Romans 9 to Acts 9. Page 1167. In Acts 9, the Bible details Paul's amazing conversion. Nobody's more surprised that he's a Christian than the Apostle Paul. He was not going around seeking truth. He was going around killing those who had the truth. And that's the truth. Acts 9 says this, But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So what's happening is Paul is trying to round up Christians in the vicinity of, of Galilee and Judea, and we've gotten most of those folks, and so let's go farther afield. Let's go all the way to Syria, which is a long way to walk. And so he goes to the high priest and he says, I need a letter so I can go to the synagogue in Syria and bring back any followers of Christ there. Because the Jews had been given a dispensation by the Romans that they had uh, supremacy and primacy to Jews in matters of the Jewish religion. So by going to the high priest, he's basically getting a writ saying, I'm allowed to capture these people. And then the, 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 the governor of Syria, who's not Jewish, but is a Roman uh, puppet, would say, okay, this is a Jewish matter, you can take these Jewish people and you can try them in the Jewish capital. And so Saul, still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who's he persecuting? Christians. And the voice from heaven says, why are you persecuting me. There's an intimacy and an intricacy between Christ and the Christian. We're not followers of a religion. We're grafted in to the true vine, right? Abide in me and I will abide in you. And so the Lord Jesus says, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, well, who are you, Lord? And this is going to blow Saul's mind. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they didn't see anyone. And so Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He had been struck blind. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into the city, Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. My guess is he prayed. <laughs> Verse 10. Now there's an actual believer. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and he would have been one of the ones Saul would have been scarfing up and sending out to be flogged and maybe killed. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. He didn't run away. He didn't say this is an inconvenient time. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. There's a place I want you to go. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is, yeah, because he's blind and confused and worried. And he has seen a vision, and in the vision, a man named you, <laughs> a man named Ananias, comes in and lays hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias says, by the way, did you know that's not a great idea? Have you ever had the Lord tap you on the shoulder to do something, and you go, that's not my preferred avenue. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This is great risk to Ananias to share the gospel. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children Israel. Now Paul tells us in his letters that he was most comfortable among the Jews. He burned for passion for the Jews, but he knew from the time he was saved that God's call on his life was not primarily to the Jew, but to the Gentile. Jesus had said it right there. Romans eleven thirteen displays this inner conflict within the Apostle Paul's heart. In Romans 11.13, the Bible says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. He knows full well his calling. I magnify my ministry, that is, reaching the Gentiles, in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and to save some of them. He says, I'm going to do what God told me to do, but my heart is still with these folks over here. I hope they get saved. In fact, I hope that when they see you coming in, they start to wonder, well, wait a minute, did I miss the Messiah? And you and I are a lot like the Apostle Paul because we have relatives and we have friends who we're very comfortable with. We have relatives and friends who, who we sort of just click with. No work. It's easy to be around them. We have people who we would give our right arm to see saved. And yet many times, God gives us opportunities to share Christ not with them, but with others. Many times, we find our greatest moments of opportunity and our hearers' greatest moments of receptivity, we find they occur with folks outside our circles of comfort. Have you experienced that? Huh. 
Now, with the two principles we've just seen from the other scriptures in mind, each of us has a context in which we are most comfortable, and, and we have passions and preferences for certain people, but that should not thwart us from reaching people for Christ who don't fit those categories. That leads us to point three today. Point three is this. Each of us has tremendous freedom in Christ. Especially the freedom not to live under compulsions of other preferences. I'll say that again. Each of us has tremendous freedoms in Christ, especially the freedom not to have to live under the compulsions of others. We talked about this last week, about how we're not a slave to someone else's preference, and we aren't going to let bullies run our church or our lives. Galatians 5 is clear that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There are some folks who have very strong preferences. And we don't have to live in deference to their preference. That's not what the weaker brother passage is about. Go back and listen to last week's sermon. No bully's coercion or faction's friction makes us a slave to their personal preference. That's not how it works. We're free in Christ. However, Galatians 5.2 is offset by 11 verses later. Galatians 5.2 is offset by Galatians 5.13, which says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, so you have this freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. You will consume one another. Paul is saying in our passage that we don't have to live under the thumb of some tyrant and their edict. And yet he's also saying in our passage that our freedoms ought to be exercised in such a way that we serve one another, not lord it over one another. Indeed, is this not the pattern of Paul in it all? Look at verse 19 in our text today. He says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might appease the Pharisees in our church. Nope. That I will look good in the eyes of my mother-in-law. Nope. Read it again, because we miss this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. See, Paul knows his freedoms. He knows he's entitled to receive remuneration for his good gospel work. And yet he voluntarily waives his right so that others won't be left out. So that they will have a more effective initial encounter with the gospel and not confuse his motives as being for their money when it's really for their lives. And so there are times, Christian, when our rights must be left. When we must become all things to all men so that we might win some. Times when we indeed become chameleons for Christ. And this brings us to point four. Each of us has a mandate from Scripture to subvert our rights and our preferences to win those around us to Jesus. 
Each of us has a mandate from Scripture to subvert our rights and our preferences to win those around us to Jesus. Point four is the essence of our passage today. Listen again as it resonates with this mandate to subvert our preferences to win those around us to Jesus. Verse 19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. That's a position of submission and humility, isn't it? That we enter into voluntarily. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all. Why? That I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one of the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. The Christian position is submission to Christ for the advancement of his kingdom. Think about that for a second. The Christian position is submission to Christ. We call him Lord. How do we get saved? We believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and we cry out to him asking him to be our Lord. The Christian position is submission to Christ for the advancement of His kingdom. Seek not, but seek what? Christ and His kingdom. His kingdom and His righteousness. The Christian position is submission to Christ for the advancement of His kingdom. So what does that mean practically? That means practically that Jesus calls us not to primarily serve ourselves, but to sacrifice ourselves. Jesus calls us not primarily to, to, to serve ourselves, but to sacrifice ourselves. Jesus never calls us in the New Testament to take up our rights. He tells us to take up our cross and to die to self that others might meet Jesus because they met us. Friends, the Bible says we are his witnesses. We are His lamp that He has set on a hill. We are to make disciples of all nations. Now, so we can either be Christ-like and other-centered, or we can be carnal and self-centered. And the choice is ours every day in a myriad of different ways. Amen? Every day in a myriad of different ways. I can be Christ-like and other-centered, or I can be carnal and self-centered. So the question is, will we so love the world that we give up our rights and advocate our preferences so that others might become our brothers and sisters? Or will we cling to our personal trinity, our unholy trinity of my comfort, my convenience, and my security? That's not the Christian's trinity, is it? But it is the American trinity. My comfort, my convenience and my security. And this brings us to letter A today. Since each of us has a mandate from Scripture to subvert our rights and preferences to win those around us for Jesus, letter A is this. This means our motives need to be evangelistic, 
not individualistic. Our motives, why we do what we do day in and day out, our motives ought to be evangelistic, not individualistic. Why do you do what you do? Do you do it because it best expresses your individuality? Because it, or because it best positions you to share Christ with someone? The world clamors, you do you, bro. Right? You do you, bro. Just be you. God's Word commands, verse 19, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in the blessing. This idea of not hoarding the blessing, but what? Sharing the blessing of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, we live in an age, and we're going into a season that's highly materialistic, amen? And, and we live in a culture that's highly hedonistic, correct? And, and the zeitgeist of our moment is that we each need to be entirely individualistic. 1 Corinthians 9 could not be more countercultural in its call to us all to instead be evangelistic. And you get to pick what you're going to be. If our motives are gospel, then our methods need to be incarnational, flexible, and suitable to the person to whom we're trying to reach for Jesus. And that brings us to letter B today. Letter B is this. Our methods ought to be incarnational, flexible, and suitable to the person we are reaching, not simply in the ways we feel most comfortable. See, are you individualistic? It's about me. I feel comfortable doing this, being this, saying this, being here, avoiding them, doing that. I'm comfortable. It's about me. Or is it about Jesus? I'm not comfortable. Instead of being individualistic, I'm going to be evangelistic. I'm going to step outside of the way I'm comfortable so that I am strategic. It means our methods ought to be incarnational, flexible, and suitable to the person we're reaching, not just the way we like best. Now, the word incarnate, we don't use a ton anymore, but, but it means to take on flesh. And Hebrews 2.14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their, demand, in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And you got to remember, eternally, Jesus existed as divinity. Jesus has been fully God from time immemorial. He always is, was, and forever will be. And yet, at a moment in time, 2,000 years ago, he decided to incarnate, to, to take on true humanity. Divinity took on humanity that we would be saved from our iniquity. That's why there's Christmas. And Christmas is the grand preview to the grand story, which is the cross. And greater than the cross is the resurrection. And that's why we have a living hope, not a dead moralist. And so, 
I want you to notice that Jesus' ministry, the author and perfecter of our faith, the example that we're to, to look to and strive to and to be more and more like Jesus and less and less like us, well, guess what? Jesus' ministry was not aloof. It was intimate. He incarnated to best reach us. Jesus' ministry was not just incarnational, but if you read the Gospels, it was flexible and it was always suitable to the person he was trying to reach at that moment. Uh, to the woman at the well, he asked her if she wanted living water to encourage her to become God's daughter. Uh, uh, to, to Nicodemus, who was steeped in the law and was the teacher of Israel, Jesus cut through it all but with, a, with a simple but powerful truth that he must be born again if he has the opportunity to have new life in Christ. You have to be born again and not just try to keep the law better. Jesus was flexible, and he always spoke in a way that was suitable to the person he was trying to reach with the gospel. And so taking a page from our Savior, the Apostle Paul endeavored to be incarnational, flexible, and suitable to the person he was trying to reach. Listen again to verse 20 and see if you don't see incarnational, flexible, and suitable. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. Now, I want to remind you, the Apostle Paul had preferences. But he didn't build his life in deference to his preferences. He had passions. But he did not let that stop him from being who he needed to be, that others might be able to give the gospel a hearing. There's an English expositor named John Phillips, and I'm going to quote him a bit here as he explains Paul's background. And it gives you a picture of Paul and how Paul was, was incarnational. He was flexible and he was suitable. He became all things to all men. So John Phillips says, Paul was born a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. He was strictly raised as a Pharisee. He seems to have come from a rather well-to-do family. He was well-educated. He moved in, in, in high society within Jerusalem. He had access directly to the high priest, didn't he, in our passage in Acts 9. And, and he was known by name in Jewish ruling circles. He also possessed Roman citizenship by birth, something very rare indeed. And this in itself would put him on a, a higher strata of the social ladder. He was at home, too, in the Greek world. He could converse at ease as an equal with the Athenian intellectuals at Mars Hill. He didn't skip a beat. At the same time, Paul was also a tent maker. And since every Jewish boy was required to learn a trade, he was not ashamed to work at his trade. He could rank himself among the artisans of the working class as well as the scions of the social world. He was as much at home plying his needle in the workshop through the tent as he was speaking before kings and governors. Moreover, Paul spent time in prison, didn't he? For the cause of Christ, not because he was a criminal, and, and, and so, Paul was at home with men within the prison situation. Indeed, on occasion, he proved his ability to exert enormous gospel influence over men while established in prison situations, for he brought the Philippian jailer to Christ in Acts 16. Paul used all of this really unique background, not to express his individuality, but rather always evangelistically soldiers and sailors 
governors and jailers, slaves and slave owners, the rich and the famous, the poor and the downcast, they were all the same to Paul. You know what they were? They were people for whom Christ died. They were people for whom Christ died. They were people for whom Christ died. There was no social barrier in the New Testament that Paul was unwilling to scale. He moved with ease in all strata of society. Paul was nobody's slave, and yet he was everybody's slave. Now, friends, there's a certain type of Christian who's more concerned with creating fellow tribalists than being a simple evangelist. So if our tribe all wears ties... You go around as though you're the Duke of Windsor Knotts, telling everyone that they must do it our way, right away. You could go the other way. Uh, If your tribe has more of a granola vibe, and then you're going to lobby for fair trade coffee carried in reusable hemp sacks, paired with locally produced organic offerings that you bring home as you pedal on your reconditioned bicycle for environmental purposes. And you will try to convert everyone to your lifestyle. You see, it's real easy to have a certain Pharisee camp and miss the other one. Everyone who tells you that that which is peripheral is central has a Pharisee problem. Have you ever noticed that birds of a feather flock together? The Thai people always hang out together, and the creation care people always hang out together. But they don't hang out with each other. There's an old saying that birds of a feather, well, they flock together. So if I were to go to a sports bar right now, there's probably a number of people there that are disproportionately wearing sports jerseys. Probably a safe bet, isn't it? Hmm. Uh, If I were to go to the gun club, even though no one is hunting at that moment, there'd be a bunch of people in camo, not really sure why, but they'll be in camo. When we want to show our uniqueness, we still have a dress code. So think of all the rebels in the previous decades. In the 50s, what did rebels wear? Well, they wore James Dean wear. They wore blue jeans and a white t-shirt and a black leather jacket. And they all wore it because they conformed to the image of the rebel. And, And in the 80s, those rebels brought back those leather jackets and they added mohawks and sometimes a chain connecting their nose ring to their ear ring. Right? You've seen these, okay? Uh, in the 90s, if you want to be a rebel, you, you, you listened to Nirvana and you got into the grunge scene and you thrift shopped it. And, and, and then at the turn of the century, if you wanted to be a rebel, you were an emo and you wore all black and too much eyeliner for no apparent reason. And, and then today's hipsters are kind of rebelling against general conformity to society and so they all wear super skinny jeans and, and, and they have ironic t-shirts, usually with flannel over them and, and maybe they have dark, thick, rimmed glasses that don't actually have any glass in them. I had a waiter one time, and I looked over and said, he doesn't have any glass in his glasses. And I just looked at him, like, no, he doesn't. It was a look, and I was just baffled. Like, it's the first time I saw that. Welcome back to America after being in Zimbabwe. People in Zimbabwe who have glasses have them because they need correction. Here you have them because it shows fashion. The point is, we like to have a tribe We like to carry off a certain vibe, and we like to flock with those who agree with us that we're the in crowd in their group. But if we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel, we're going to need to get beyond this tendency. Which brings us to point C. 
This means our mentality, how we think, how we view life, our worldview. This means our mentality ought to be missionary to bless others, not mercenary to win them to our little tribe. Our mentality ought to be missionary to bless others with Jesus and not mercenary to win them to our little tribe. Listen to verse 19 again. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as those outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become, what's it say? All things to all people. Why? That by all means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them, those people different from me, who aren't my cup of tea, who maybe don't like me, the blessings of Jesus Christ. You know what? In 2019, and going into 2020, people will know we are Christians. Not by our MAGA hats or our social justice bumper stickers. Instead, the Lord Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for each other. You have love for one another. Our mentality ought to be motivated by missionary love for our unsaved neighbor to bring them to Jesus, not mercenary zeal to convert them to our tribal subsection. In John 21.15, the Apostle Peter had blown it. He had three times rejected Jesus Christ. Uh, he denied that he knew Him. He had three rejections. And the Lord meets him on the beach for breakfast. He denied him three times next to a, coal, uh, a charcoal fire. And then the Lord made a charcoal fire and made him fish for breakfast. And he restores Peter. You remember this, John 21? He asked Peter three questions. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Not just do you love me, do you love me more than others? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, well, then do something. What was it? Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And he said to him, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because the Lord had said to him a third time, do you love me? And so Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, our missionary mentality means we feed people, not the lines of our tribe, but the word of God and the gospel of grace. There is a certain kind of Christian that runs around wanting to make tribalists instead of Christians. It's okay to have firmly held beliefs, but the only belief that gets you to heaven is Jesus. And that ought to be what people in New Jersey know us about primarily. As followers of the way, the church in Antioch were first called Christians. They weren't called tie wearers, and they weren't called creation carers. 
Christian, followers of Christ. Because they put Jesus first, and the world began to realize something's different about these people. And so Jesus tells Peter, you need to help the lambs of the faith feed my lambs. The pure milk of the word, not the shibboleths of our tradition. Well-established saints, the, the sheep mentioned twice in John 21, are to be reminded not the picadillos of our preference, but the truths of Scripture according to 2 Peter 1.12. 2 Peter 1.12, Peter says, this is the same Peter that Jesus said do this to, right? And now Peter's giving his last letter to us, and Peter wants to tell all of us, the Lord told him three times, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, and feed my lambs. And so he's talking to the sheep, he's talking to believers, and he says, so I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh you and your memory, as long as I live in this tent of the body, because I know I will soon be putting it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Are we majoring in the minors to win people to our tribe, or are we keeping the main thing the main thing? Winning people to Jesus. And when our brothers start to go back to tribalism, do we gently pull them back to the main thing? Because the enemy of the best is the good. And a lot of churches do a lot of good and miss the, the best. We can have the best worship program. We can have the best kids ministry. We can be all kinds of wonderful, innovative things. But if Jesus is peripheral, not central, we've made a huge mistake. So, we come to point D. If our mentality matters, and it does, so does our manner, which brings us to letter D. Our manner ought to be servant-oriented, not self-oriented. Our manner ought to be servant-oriented, not self-oriented. Listen to the opening verses. Paul's manner is that intentionally, voluntarily, of a servant, not as a seeker of self-interest. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Can I ask you a question? What's more Christ-like than humble service? What's more Christ-like than humble service? Matthew 20, 28 tells us the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 reminds us, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be retained, to be held on to, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a, on a cross. Perhaps the most ignominious way, certainly one of the most torturous ways you can die. I want you to remember the words of Jesus in Mark 9, 35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last. He must be the servant of all. Acts 20, 35. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to... Give, then receive. And so then we come back to Galatians 5, 13. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. And now we come back to our passage. 
1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I got a couple cops in here. I got some retired cops in here. I won't single you out. The Christian version of our Miranda rights. You know your Miranda rights. They show it on the TV all the time, right? And the Christian version of our Miranda rights reads like this. You have the right to remain silent about your rights so that others aren't left out. Are we willing this week, with ever-increasing frequency and intensity and intentionality, to ensure that our rights are left, that we might become chameleons for Christ? Let's pray to those ends now. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would please help us to do what we can't do on our own. That you would help us to become chameleons for Christ. Help us to move beyond our natural inclination to be comfortable and instead, by your Spirit, to be incarnational, flexible, and suitable for those you want us to reach. Help us, by your Holy Spirit, to be all things to all people that we might win some. Help us to not have something that's petty like our ethnicity define us, but rather our allegiance to Jesus be what we are known for. Help us to live in such a way that we give way in areas that get in the way of people seeing Jesus as the way. May we be able to live outside of the law of our tribe to those not in our tribe without ever living outside of the law of God for even a moment in that endeavor. Help us not to become equivocating compromisers who sinfully warps the gospel to suit the preference of our audience, but rather please make us effective ambassadors able to have the gospel be the only offense to those in our presence, that Jesus might be high and lifted up and that you might then draw all men unto yourself. May we be like Jesus, who never altered the essential gospel message, always saying, the good news is at hand. Repent and believe. And yet, he so beautifully began the gospel conversation differently, depending on if he was speaking to a great teacher of Scripture such as Nicodemus, or a Samaritan woman too ashamed to go to the well when the other women are present. To every audience, may we, like Jesus, offer you as the living water and boldly share, you must be born again. Amen and amen.